Hello and welcome back to the Addicted to Healthy podcast, your one-stop destination for all things health and a kick-ass life. I'm Laurent, certified nutritional practitioner and PCOS health coach and the host of the Addicted to Healthy podcast. So today I have Dr. Stephen Hussey on the podcast. He is a board-certified chiropractic doctor and functional medicine practitioner. Um, he is also the author of The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health, and The Heart, Our Most Medically Misunderstood Organ. He's passionate about the natural world and applying the natural sciences of ecology and evolution to understanding our chronic disease epidemic. So we're going to be talking specifically about that, how uh, chronic disease has become an epidemic, why that is, um, underlying imbalances in the body, specifically there are five, and then what environmental toxins look like, what they're doing to our bodies, and how we can support our detoxification organs. So there's going to be a lot of juicy information today. I'm super excited to pick Stephen's brain. Uh, I'm really excited to share this with you. So let's get started. Let's get the episode going. So welcome, Stephen, to the episode, to the podcast, Addicted to Healthy. Thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So I'm super excited to get into this conversation. There's a lot of ground that we need to cover. But before we get started, can I get you to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do and what really brought you into this world of health and wellness? Yeah, so I am a chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner. Uh, I practice chiropractic in a clinic, and I also do online health coaching um, at my website, resourceyourhealth.com. And I guess um, from a very early age, uh, I had a lot of chronic issues, inflammatory in nature. So I had things like irritable bowel syndrome and chronic hives and asthma and allergies, and ultimately ended up with uh, the autoimmune disease type 1 diabetes. And so from a very early age, I was kind of thrown into that Western medical system. And we relied on that for uh, my health as I grew up. But I came to find out as I grew up that uh, they were doing a very good job of helping me manage these things, but they weren't helping me figure out why they happened uh, and what I could do about them. And so I think around 20 years old, I started taking my health into my own hands and uh, eventually went to get a medical education. Uh, but even that was uh, kind of fell short as to explaining why uh, I got these conditions, why my body had this reaction. Um, and and so and it, that's because, you know, any type of medical training is very focused on a diagnosis. Uh, it's not really focused on, on why, it's focused on what. You know, identify what it is and we can treat the symptoms. And so uh, I guess through my own curiosity uh, about why my body was reacting this way, uh, I went down um, uh, the path of, of evolution and human history. Uh, and I figured out that um, it was largely because my body was was having a bad reaction to the environment that I was in. Uh, and so um, if I changed that environment, I got a better health outcome. And so now I, I like to use uh, the knowledge that I've gained uh, in helping people achieve um, their health as well by changing their environment. Amazing. I love it. And I see this a lot um, with even like practitioners or people who are, you know, healthy, quote unquote, they started out with the conventional route and they just hit a wall or they were sick of it. So then they got into kind of like digging into the root causes and imbalances. And that's really where the magic happens, right? So it's not about a Band-Aid that I usually talk about. It's about really addressing the root imbalances. And I know that you are all about that. So when oh, yeah. it comes to chronic disease, there's definitely an epidemic, correct? Correct, yes. 
So what can you say through your research is really going on here? Like, what is this stemming from exactly? Well, uh, I guess what really led me down the path to figuring out what, what contributed to my health issues um, was the study of evolution. And so uh, when I started reading things like Darwin and um, uh, Richard Dawkins and then eventually Jared Diamond uh, and other uh, thinkers like that, um, and I really mastered evolution, I found out that it was this mismatch between the environment that humans are living in now, the one that we've changed uh, pretty rapidly, uh, and our evolved physiology. And so the four things that I came across uh, regarding evolution that really kind of, you know, light bulb came on for me uh, were one, uh, the idea of natural selection. So I had heard of natural selection for a long time, and I always thought it was so uh, crazy or, or thought it was impossible that, you know, a living thing could like change its characteristics to better suit its environment. Uh, and it turns out I thought that was crazy because that's not how it happens. So uh, the changes happen over many generations. Um, and so it's not like I could physically change, you know, my physical characteristics or my physiology. I would have to do that over generations or the species would have to do that over generations. And so how it works is like if they I give this example often, if uh, we had a bunch of people, some of them were tall, some of them were short, and then all of a sudden the environment changed to where the only food available was uh, food high up in the trees and where the tall people could get it and they didn't just share with the, share, the short people. Uh, then all of a sudden the tall people would be have an advantage and they would be more likely to thrive and reproduce and pass on their genes and the short people would have a less likelihood of doing that. And so over time, when this happened, we'd get more tall people genes being passed on and eventually the whole population would be tall people and the short people genes would die off. And so that's how things changed. Um, the second thing is that um, human people think that humans evolve from apes. Uh, some people think that, some people don't think that, but uh, that's kind of the general thinking when you do believe in evolution. And, uh, but the truth is, is that humans and apes came from a um, common ancestor. And so, you know, about 6 million years ago, there was this animal uh, that wasn't human, wasn't, you know, the apes we see today, uh, but it was something in between. And eventually there was a uh, dividing of the population over a population of them. And then that one population was in a different environment. And so selection pressures eventually ended up creating what we know as modern humans today. And then another one created the chimps we know today or the bonobos or the gorillas. You know, and there's many different um, uh, lineages that, that happened. And so that's the first thing is that we came from a common ancestor. But that also tells us that humans are still susceptible to evolution. And so a really good example of this today uh, is that in medical school, we always learn that people with... Um, or that diseases like heart disease and metabolic syndrome and diabetes are more prevalent in um, people of minority um, descent. So like African descent or Pacific Islander or Native American, things like that. Uh, they're more susceptible and they, and they tend to get these diseases more severely. And to me, the reason is, is that uh, people of European descent um, had access to these poor quality foods that tend to exacerbate conditions like those before of these people of minority descent. And so there was a few, you know, five, 600 years where Europeans uh, had a little bit more time to adapt to that or genes that didn't react well to that diet started to die off. And so, you know, that, that those types of foods are, are still not good for people of European descent. And they still get things like diabetes and heart disease, but they're a little less likely to get them. And that's because they've had a little bit of time to adapt, which is very interesting. And then the third thing is that evolution takes a very, very long time. Uh, so it can take, you know, the Russian scientist Dmitry Belyev showed 
by his selective breeding of foxes that it can take at least 30 generations of very specific breeding uh, to get any type of physical or behavioral characteristic changes. And so that's the absolute minimum. So I don't even know what my ancestors four generations, you know, look like or, or who they were. And so that's a very long time to think of. They're at least 30 generations. And then the last aspect is that because it takes such a long time, uh, when a species environment changes too quickly uh, and there's not enough time given to that species to have the necessary generations to adapt to that change, then we start to see breakdowns in physiology. And that's the mismatch I'm talking about. Um, because if we look at the history of humans over the last 10,000 years we've been through, um, which seems like a long time, but evolutionarily it's, it's a very short amount of time, um, we've seen a lot of drastic changes in the human way of life. And so that's what's, what's going on. These changes aren't quick enough to, to kill us, but they're quick enough to cause the symptoms of being removed from our natural environment, and that is our chronic disease epidemic. Interesting. So basically we have changed too quickly and now our physiologic physiological body cannot keep up and it doesn't recognize all of these changes, um, which we will talk about a little bit. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. And I think it's pretty refreshing to think about it this way because I've never had somebody explain it that way. Um, so yeah, it does make a lot of sense for sure. Yeah, so yeah. what are we kind of looking at? Like, what would you say is a time frame that these changes started to really have significant impact on us? Like, has it been like in the past 100 years or more than that? And what are these specific changes? Yeah, so so I think there are things really started um, around uh, 10,000 years ago, 12 to 10,000 years ago. Because before that time, you know, the, you know, 200, 300,000 years that modern humans have been around, uh, we were living out in the wild. And then 10,000 years ago is when we see the first signs of farming, what we call the agricultural revolution. Uh, and that was, you know, a big change, uh, but there were even bigger changes to come. So uh, if we fast forward um, through that, through all the civilizations that happened, you know, with the um, uh, with farming uh, as their their source of food, and we get to around, you know, the time of scientific revolution and the Renaissance and things like that, things started to change again. But then things really started to change at the Industrial Revolution, which is like, you know, mid 1800s. And so that's when uh, we started seeing a lot of toxins being pumped into the environment. Uh, we also saw the invention of, of a lot of different machines that all of a sudden were doing a lot of the work that humans used to do. And that was kind of the beginning of um, what led us to kind of our, our more sedentary lifestyles now. Um, and then there have been other major changes too. Obviously, the technology revolution, uh, which is very new, um, has, has changed our lives dramatically. Uh, we're all staring at these screens now rather than out into nature and getting in contact with the earth. And so um, there's five main imbalances that I think drive most chronic disease. And they are, one, the decrease in um, nutrients in our food. And so just, you know, that started way back in 10,000 years ago with industrial or with the agricultural revolution. And so we started relying more on plants um, farming uh, rather than wild foods. And so the nutrient uh, density of those foods um, severely decreased. And so, you know, if our body doesn't have the nutrients it needs uh, to perform basic biological functions, uh, it's not going to give us health. The second one is mitochondrial health. And so mitochondria, if we remember from, you know, eighth grade biology is those little powerhouses of the cell, they make our energy, our ATP. And so they're very dependent on uh, oxygen uh, and also they're dependent on um, the ability of the body to get rid of um, 
what are called free radicals, which can be a toxin, but your body also makes free radicals as well. And so if your body's not good at doing those things, then the mitochondria can break down. We don't get energy like we should. And there's been so much research that showing that, you know, mitochondrial health or mitochondrial dysfunction is linked to most chronic diseases. Uh, then we have gut health, which is very important. So if we look at how the natural world is, it's, it's usually forms itself into ecosystems and we are no exception. You know, we are a big ecosystem. Uh, we have a microbiome on us in and on us, uh, that helps us, um, be resilient to the different stressors and, um, things we come in contact with. Uh, but it also plays a vital port, um, vital role in our physiology. And so most of that microbiome is in our gut. So gut health is really important. So we're looking at, um, just the fact that, you know, cesarean births are increasing. Um, I think about a third of births are cesarean. And so the baby's not getting exposed to the birth canal, which is the beneficial bacteria from the mother uh, that inoculates the baby's microbiome at first. Um, babies are not being breastfed as often uh, as they should be. Uh, I mean, everybody should be really, but um, when, that, when that happens, then the microbiome is not being fed like it should in those first uh, years of life. And so it suffers there. Uh, and then, you know, we use antibiotics a lot and sometimes they're necessary uh, in life-threatening situations, but um, they're used way too often and it's destroying our microbiome, along with a lot of different toxins that also kill microbes uh, on our skin, in our gut, uh, when we eat the, the foods that have been sprayed with pesticides and things like that. The fourth one is an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system. So this is the nervous system, part of the nervous system that helps us um, you know, perceive our environment and tell our body if it's a threatening one or a, a safe one. And so looking at, um, you know, when we're in nature, when we were living in nature, our, we have a nice balance to that nervous system. But now we're, we're very concerned about many, many different things. Our lives are going, you know, a million miles an hour, uh, and we get this imbalance in our autonomic nervous system. And when that happens, our body tends to forget about the things that it does when it's in a relaxed state, like digestion or sleeping or reproducing or whatever it may be, you know? So people will start to get symptoms um, of those, uh, of this, um, of those nature uh, because their nervous system is not in the correct state. And then the last one is uh, the increase in toxins we've seen in our environment. Like I mentioned in the industrial revolution, um, there were, there were many things that the earth, deposited in its crust, you know, a long, long time ago, possibly billions of years ago, that because they were in the Earth's crust, the life that's on the Earth's surface didn't evolve with those things present. And here I'm mainly talking about like fossil fuels and uh, heavy metals and things like that. And then Industrial Revolution, we started mining those things out of the Earth, and now they're very prevalent in our um, environments, and they're having an effect on our health. And so I think it's, um, then you combine that with, you know, modern day, you know, chemistry uh, and the synthetic, um, uh, the synthesizing of, of different chemicals. And it's, it's um, something like 70,000 new toxic chemicals in our environment since 1950. Uh, and again, these are things that our body has never seen before. So how can we expect them to have any place uh, in, our, in our physiology? And so those are the five things that I think pretty much drive all chronic disease. Okay, so I would love to 
go into these a little bit more because I think it's really important that we understand what they are and then also see how we can address them because I know there are a lot of things that we can't control but then there are things that we can control right so we want to focus on that so for, sure. for instance for a decrease in nutrients in food um, obviously a lot of people are going to be like okay well if the food that I'm eating even if it's like organic or whatever but if it's the soil is depleted or i'm not getting the same nutrients as before like i'm pretty much doomed so what can we do in this kind of circumstance um also i also want to know like are you an advocate of supplements in this kind of area or how do you feel about organic and all that kind of thing yeah so when we look at our food um i i try not to tell people to do any certain type of you know fad diet or or, you know, learn a certain way of eating that, you know, this food is good, this food is bad, because, um, I mean, I could probably find something wrong with every single food out there. And so it's really about finding the nutrient density and making the most nutrient dense source you, um, or choice you can in the situation that you're in. And so there's always going to be a hierarchy. So if we, I mean, you mentioned, you know, organic, so let's look at, let's vegetables. Um, I think organic is much better because um, testing it, uh, there's definitely more nutrients and less chemicals on it consistently. There are still chemicals, but they're less so. Um, and organic is also a clear vote against genetically modified foods and Monsanto and glyphosate uh, and things like that. So we want to avoid that uh, and vote with our dollar to to stop that those processes from happening. But if we look at you know organic, to me, that's a more um, natural environment, more like the natural environment of plants. And so if I was to make life very easy for a plant by spraying all these herbicides and pesticides on it, so nothing bothered it, then it would have no need to um, gain the nutrients it needs to defend them off itself. And so that would make the food less nutrient dense uh, when I ate it. So if, if it's organic, they're using less of those things. So the, the plant has to fend for itself a little bit more which means we're going to have uh, more nutrients in it. Yeah. So just like uh, as an example, like, I mean, it's pretty common knowledge that when people get sick, they're like, Oh, I need vitamin C or I need zinc or something like that. Some nutrient, you know, because to help them fend off the virus or bacteria that, that got a hold of them. Um, but it's the same with, with any living thing. So if, if, um, if we made it very easy, like if there was no virus or bacteria that ever infected us, Nobody would be saying, oh, I need more vitamin C or more zinc or whatever. Um, and it's the same with the plant. If we made life very easy by spraying this pesticide so that nothing bothers it, then it has no need to increase its levels of vitamins and minerals that would help it fend off those things naturally right, because we totally got rid of them for it. Yeah. I like it. All right. So basically organic, I know there's, there's a lot of people who say like, yeah, there's no studies to show that organic is better, but there are actually studies that show that there are more yes. nutrients. And of course, who want to avoid the chemicals and non-GMO and all that. Um, what about supplements in this case? Like if you're yeah. saying that's decrease in nutrients in foods, um, should we be taking supplements? Um, so as I think there's a place for supplements, um, but I'm a little bit wary about most of them. So, A, they're, they we're designed to get things as a food. You know, there's, there's the synergistic nature of all the nutrients um, designed or put into food uh, that our body is used to getting it that way. Now, we can show that there's therapeutic benefits from, you know, synthetically making or extracting vitamin C from uh, a plant or making it in a lab. And we've shown that that can have beneficial effects if we do that intravenously or however, you know. But I think that 
there's a lot we don't know uh, as far as nutritional science. And I think that extracting a nutrient and taking it high doses of it may have a therapeutic effect, but it's not how the body is designed to get them. So I think we're better off um, sticking to food. Now, it's getting very, very difficult to get all the nutrients we need from food because of the things we've kind of talked about and, you know, our modern farming practices and being reliant on um, farming in general instead of wild foods. So supplements can be necessary sometimes. Um, but I think that I, it was put to me a, a good way, like on a podcast I heard one time, um, he was saying that, you know, if we were, if we needed to get everything from food, if we were expected to get everything from food, then we would expect our environments to be, um, only what we would be exposed to in nature. And since that's not the case, we need to use um, supplements uh, in a way that can help us um, I, like combat the, the large amount of toxins we're exposed to that's not natural. But we just have to be careful about the supplements that we use because there was a, there's a lab, um, I can't remember, I think it's Consumer Health Center's lab, where they're just taking supplements off the shelf and testing them. And they're finding that, A, they're contaminated with a lot of different toxic chemicals, and B, a lot of them, like the vast majority of them, had less than or even none of what they say was in them. And so we have to be really careful about um, companies that are out to make a profit, just like pharmaceuticals, the, the supplement industry is getting just as bad, uh, making very poor quality things, labeling, labeling it as whatever it is, and people just taking pretty much junk. And so I'm a, I'm a fan of, of supplementing, but I, my first go-to is, is whole food supplements. So supplements that are pretty much just food that are put in a supplement form. Um, like I'm a very big fan of um, people who don't like to eat like grass-fed beef liver. They've freeze-dried it and put it into a capsule and people can take that, you know, and that's a, a whole food source of it. That's just one example. So Totally. I totally agree with that too. Like focusing on the quality because now we can just get supplements everywhere. I was talking to somebody who saw supplements at a dollar store. So like, yeah. no, I would not recommend that. But yeah, looking at whole food supplements instead of synthetic and mm -hmm. all of those fillers and crap that's added, uh, exactly. really, really important for the quality. Um, okay. So looking at obviously nutrient dense foods as much as possible. So not the processed foods, foods that are coming from the earth, um, organic if we can, and then supplementing strategically with good quality supplements that can definitely boost our nutrient status. Mm -hmm. Um, number two for the mitochondrial health, how do we boost that? Yeah. So a little bit of mitochondrial biochemistry. So what are mitochondria do uh, is they take oxygen, which we're breathing in, and they take, uh, whether it's a glucose or a fat or even a, a protein, your body can take that and they can break it down into, um, uh, I guess, chem biochemicals that your mitochondria can use to extract energy from them. So basically what our mitochondria are doing are harvesting the energy between chemical bonds in food. And they're taking that harvested energy in the form of electrons and they're passing it down what's called this electron transport chain and creating this kind of electron gradient or electrical gradient that ends up with us being able to uh, make energy in the form of ATP. But what happens in that process, just like when we burn any type of fuel, like when your car burns gasoline, there's an exhaust, there's a waste product. And we have waste products when we do this, this process. And so those waste products are water, which we either breathe or sweat out, you know, somewhere or another, or we use somewhere in our body. Uh, carbon dioxide, which we breathe out. Um, and then there's also a free radical. Well, heat is also a byproduct, which, you know, where we're, um, mammals were warm beings. And if we burn them more energy by going for a run, we get more uh, heat. 
And then also there's a free radical. And that's the problematic one. That's the one that we have trouble getting rid of. Now, our body has built-in mechanisms of making antioxidants to take care of those things like glutathione and superoxide dismutase. And we need to feed our body the correct materials that it needs to make those things. And so some of those things are um, glycine. So that's an amino acid uh, that's found in like collagen-like proteins uh, and a little bit in organ meats and things. And so it's very important that we get the proper amino acid balance. So not just eating um, muscle meats and things, but also eating organ meats, bone broths, you know, getting the, um, eating the tendon, like the, the whole animal, um, which will give us the balance of amino acids so we can make that antioxidant. Um, but also uh, different minerals like sulfur is very, very important, which we find in like cruciferous vegetables in high amounts, um, but also egg yolks, uh, things like that. Um, very important for making those antioxidants so that we, um, we can take care of those free radicals. Because if we don't, those free radicals, when they're made as exhaust, um, they, they damage tissue because they want, uh, they steal electrons from anything that they can. And since they're made right there by the mitochondria, most of the time the mitochondria gets damaged because the electrons are stolen from it. And then when we, uh, when the mitochondria get damaged, um, we have a lot of, we have um, trouble making energy. So people can get all kinds of symptoms because every cell in your body has mitochondria. Um, but also we can get a breakdown uh, in the functions of the cell because we're not getting uh, ATP being made. Uh, so detoxifying, uh, eating a, a higher fat type of diet because we're may, way more efficient when we burn fat. So we don't make as many, as much of that exhaust when we burn fat uh, compared to when we burn a carbohydrate. And so that was one of the big things that happened when we switched to farming because we started eating a lot of very um, carbohydrate rich foods um, and eating more of a, a good fats diet. Uh, and just so detoxifying, eating a high fat diet. Um, and then also um, stress has a huge impact on your mitochondria uh, at a cellular level. And so, you know, uh, definitely taking care of your stress, handling your stress, having, having a healthy stress response, the thing will, will help your mitochondria. Yeah. And I was actually just listening to two doctors talking about stress specifically with Alzheimer's and different health conditions. And obviously we are under more stress today, but it's also about the kind of stress. Like there's actually good stress and bad stress, for instance, like being stressed out about something that you're passionate about, but it's kind of like exciting. Whereas mm -hmm. something that you just hate or like your job that you just hate to go to, you're not feeling fulfilled, things like that. So it was interesting. Um, but yeah, we're definitely just way too on the go all the time. Um, and as you were, as you were mentioning, our environment has changed so much and we're just doing so many things. So I love that yeah. you mentioned stress as well. We will definitely get more into like the detox that you're talking about. Cause I want to talk mm -hmm. about toxins, yeah. um, but for gut health, um, I know there are a lot of people, myself included, who didn't, uh, weren't born via the vaginal canal. They had C-section, they weren't breastfed. They were given antibiotics since they were little. Um, so what in these circumstances where it's not really in your control, can you do to start to rebuild that gut health and microbiome? Yeah. So, I mean, this was the biggest area for me, you know, as far as inflammation goes, I mean, uh, most inflammation starts in the gut. And so excess inflammation is basically a immune system that's overreactive. And so 70 to 80% of your immune system is in your gut. And so when it gets damaged or it doesn't develop properly, we can end up with inflammatory conditions. Uh, or autoimmune type conditions. So some of the best things you can do, um, again, it, it's nutrients. Uh, give your body the things that it needs to repair the lining of the gut. 
And so uh, we're talking about, again, it, back to that bone broth. I mean, um, the, the amino acids in bone broth are the ones that help repair the lining of the gut. And then um, also, you know, diet is huge. So people talk about probiotics and prebiotics and all these different things. Uh, but the number one thing you can do to change your gut, your diversity and um, the ratios of different bacteria in your gut uh, is your diet. And so um, eating a more diverse diet, um, but also, again, organic, because they did um, a survey, uh, Jeffrey Smith, uh, you know, the big GMO guy that he's written those books, uh, he did a survey of over 3000 patients. And he just had them switch to an all organic diet, 100% organic diet, and then had them report what benefits uh, they, uh, they saw when they did that. And there was like 20 or 30 different um, symptoms or ailments that people reported got better. But the number one, 80% of people said that they had complete resolution or at least significant improvement in gut health um, and gut symptoms, whether it was gas or bloating or cramping or pain or whatever it was, digestive issues. Um, so to me, that's, that's because a lot of these um, herbicides and pesticides are either directly poking holes in our gut, giving us leaky gut, or um, they're uh, like antibiotic in nature. So they're killing off our, our good microbiome, which glyphosate, which was, a I think, originally developed as an antibiotic. So it makes sense. Um, so there's those things. And then I'm not a huge fan of... Um, most probiotics, uh, because most of them are very small uh, amount of strains, and we want like you know hundreds to thousands of different strains of bacteria in our gut. We want diversity; that's what gives us resilience. And so we don't want to create monocultures. Um, we don't want you know the same uh, strains of um, Acidophilus or Bifidobacterium over and over and over again. That's going to give us a monoculture, um, or you know a lot of eight different strains, but a little of a lot of other ones. And so. I mean, actually the best probiotic I've, I've seen out there is the Thrive, Just Thrive probiotic because it has these four keystone species that actually regulate diversity of the gut. And so um, it's amazing what these four little species do, um, but they're not just there to create more of themselves. They're there to create diversity in the gut, which is really, really cool. And then um, the last so, thing for sorry, gut health. Sorry, how many like strains would be in that kind of probiotic then? There was four strains um, okay. and they're called bacillus. Uh, strains and like I said, they're like they're kind of like the the cops. <laughs> they go in there and they they uh, regulate the environment. So if there's too much of this probiotic or um, microbe, then they produce an antibiotic to it to uh, bring it down a little bit so that others can um, proliferate and and give us diversity. And if there's let's say this one needs more, uh, we need more of this type of um, strain, so it'll like produce a food or or um, uh, so that it can feed it, so that it can increase the diversity of that, which is pretty fascinating. Um, is it kind of similar to the spore-based probiotics? Exactly, yeah, okay. they're spore-based. Yeah. Okay, awesome, perfect, Yeah. cool. Um, okay, sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, <laughs> the, the last thing is, um, I don't know if you've heard of a product called Restore. Um, oh my God, goodness, yes, I've been wanting to get that for so long. Yeah, so it's pretty fascinating, and it goes back to you know my whole theory on you know the environment uh, and evolution and everything, and that we're we've changed our environment too quickly, and we're supposed to be in nature because um, restore is basically, I mean, to simplify it, is dirt and water, um, and but it's very specific uh, molecules from dirt that um, the creators found what had, was had the most benefit to fixing like leaky gut 
um, and mitigating the damage caused by toxins that we may eat in our food. Um, and it's pretty fascinating, the trials that they did in the healing of the cells that they saw. And so um, he, the creator of this, you know, he found this uh, fossilized dirt out in Arizona that seemed to work better than any other dirt as far as the molecules in it at doing this. And so he's harvested and made a supplement from it. Um, but again, it just goes to show that we're supposed to be in contact with dirt. You know, there's beneficial compounds even in dirt for us, uh, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah, I definitely looked into the restore and it said to eliminate glyphosate from the intestine. Is that correct? Yeah, and they, and they market it as that because um, that's the clinical trials that they have. That's what they've proven so far, um, that it, can, like it, uh, it helps your body recover from exposure to glyphosate, but it also, if you you know, if you're taking it and you happen to get exposed to glyphosate, it mitigates the damage that it would cause um, to the cells by, you know, breaking them down. Um, but ultimately what it does is it helps cells um, communicate with each other better. So if they've lost communication, uh, which, you know, when they, even though they're surrounded by other cells, if they've lost the cell to cell communications with each other, they feel like they're alone and they start doing things that, um, you know, are beneficial for themselves and not the community of cells that they're in. And so that's problematic. And it seems that restore helps restore the connections between the cells. And so especially helpful in the gut when we've lost communication between cells and we have leaky gut. So interesting. All right. So number four, um, nervous system stress response. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is something that I find extremely fascinating because I'm very interested in um, the heart and it's what I focused on in my health coaching uh, is helping people, you know, uh, achieve high level of heart health. And, um, you know, in my research, I've found that, you know, an imbalance in this autonomic nervous system is what directly causes heart attacks, uh, or it's one of the three things that contributes to the, the cascade of events that causes a heart attack. And so we, um, we mammals have a very uh, different uh, nervous system than, uh, I mean, it's similar to some reptiles, but then anything that came before, say, like, crocodiles and turtles and things like that evolutionarily that came before them had a different uh, stress adaptation response. And so we evolved a different one. And so the, the old stress ad adaptation response in um, these older um, species was basically the singular line of things. And we're talking about the vagus nerve, which is very popular in health circles these days. Um, the vagus nerve is, is um, what drives our, or what monitors, I guess, and conducts a signal for our stress response. And so the, these older species had what's called um, a dorsal motor nucleus aspect of their vagus nerve, and it was a one pathway. And when it got overstimulated, um, basically their, um, their bodies kind of shut down, and they were very slow metabolizers, unlike mammals. And so this was beneficial to them because they, they could survive when this kind of thing shut down, but it was almost like they were playing dead, which was evolutionarily advantageous to them. Um, you know, if it wasn't, then it wouldn't have been a characteristic that evolved. But um, when we started to come along and, and, and other animals that needed more metabolic capacity, we, we needed a separate aspect of the vagus nerve. Because if we um, got overstimulated like that and shut down, we would cause damage to our organs because they need that high metabolism. And so we have what's called the nucleus ambiguous part of the vagus nerve, which is separate. Um, and there's both in the vagus nerve, but there's just two separate pathways. And so that is what creates the balance we need between our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Now, if we are living a life of high stress, 
um, or, you know, we're the only species really that can think our way into a stress response, you know, just anticipating that something may happen, uh, then that can, over time, that can shut down the nucleus ambiguous part, the parasympathetic part of the vagus nerve. And then our body kind of defaults back to this older um, evolved way of doing things, which is basically to shut things down. And so we look at, you know, what can happen and what the events that can lead up to a heart attack. And literally it's when that uh, nucleus ambiguous part of the vagus nerve shuts down, defaults to the dorsal motor nucleus, and we get a shutdown of the heart, or at least an aspect of the heart, which is really, really fascinating. And so it turns out that things that nourish are the parasympathetic aspect of our vagus nerve um, are the things that we've gotten away from uh, as we've uh, rapidly changed our environment. So that is contact with nature. Uh, it's a community, uh, which, you know, we're very connected these days with our modern technology, but we're almost disconnected from human contact. Uh, and that's one thing that stimulates parasympathetic. Um, we, uh, we definitely don't get out in the sun. Um, we don't, um, we don't even, you know, chew our food, which seems like stimulates parasympathetic, uh, because we're so on the go all the time. We just kind of scarf it down. Um, but I think it's, it, when you look at the things that, that, you know, shut down our parasympathetic aspect of our vagus nerve, it's all the things that we've, um, uh, that we have changed rapidly over the last, you know, especially 200, 300 years or so. Uh, and so nourishing that aspect of your vagus nerve is super important. Cause like I said, if it's, if it's not functioning properly, then, um, all kinds of things in the body shut down, not just, um, you know, major events like a heart attack, but also things, um, like I said, like your body's not thinking about digesting. So we get digestive issues. It's not thinking about detoxifying. So we get, um, detoxification issues. It's not thinking about sleeping. So we get insomnia, those types of things. Make sense. Yeah, totally. It's crazy how it really impacts every single organ really in the body and every system. So yep. it's something that a lot of people kind of disregard. Um, and it's also something I talk about a lot, how we usually, if we ask somebody if they're stressed, they sometimes will say no, but it's not just knowing like having a panic attack or, you know, feeling anxiety. It's all of these other stressors that we talked about. Right. So it's not yeah. just in the kind of emotional side of things. It's really about physical and chemical and all of that. So we have a few minutes remaining. I really want to get into toxins. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how they are impacting human life specifically? Um, and we'll talk a little bit about like where we can find them as well. Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned before, these toxins, you know, were not present uh, in the millions of years um, when we were evolving to our current physiology. And they only started coming about mainly in the last 200 years. And so they can be very disruptive to our physiology. They get in the way. Um, so like as an example, um, heavy metals. So we're talking about like aluminum and mercury and lead and cadmium and arsenic. Um, so those things, in, you know, there's no place for them in your body. They're very damaging to the mitochondria, which we talked about. Um, and it, you basically, if, if you look at us as like a big battery, like we're making energy all day long, um, and you put the wrong metals in a battery, because we have some metals in us, you know, copper and, and zinc and uh, iron. But if you put the wrong metals in there, we get a broken battery. Um, and so the problem with heavy metals is that they're very, very persistent toxins, meaning they're hard for our body to get rid of. They were, they were deposited in the earth and our body was not even, you know, close to 
uh, evolving any type of way to get rid of them. So we can, but it's hard to do. And so they have to be chelated and we have to have the right nutrients to do so. Um, and, and many times they can go through phase one of detoxification and then um, that actually makes it more toxic and phase two is supposed to pick it up right there and get rid of it. But if phase two is not working properly because it's been broken down by not enough nutrients or other toxins, then we end up with just more toxic intermediates uh, from these heavy metals. Um, but one thing we can do as far as heavy metals go is just um, make sure we have all the nutrients you need. So sulfur is very important. But I think one of the best things we can do is, um, is sweat. So you know, getting um, sun exposure, but also people are very into using infrared saunas. Um, which seem to extract metals right through the skin and give your liver a break altogether. Um, so that's pretty helpful. And then the other thing I'll discuss is plastic. And so plastic, um, along with some other um, things that we're, we're eating a lot of these days, it's just soy, um, are very uh, estrogenic in nature. So they mimic estrogen in the body. Um, these phthalates and plastic um, and then uh, certain um, compounds in soy do the same thing. And so what I mean by that is that, A, they can make your body believe that it has more estrogen than it does, but also they can interfere with the proper metabolism of estrogen. So estrogen hangs around too long uh, in your body. And so I think that these things, um, uh, and they have been in research, directly linked to any type of cancer or dysfunction in our sexual organs, whether it's the ovaries, uh, the uterus, uh, the breast, um, the um, prostate, any of the problems with these um, organs, um, I think can be directly linked to uh, these estrogenic compounds that are just making, you know, confusing our body's hormones. Uh, and it, it doesn't really know what's going on. Now, the other thing I like to draw um, attention to is that the same things like these plastics that are causing issues in us are causing a major issue in our, on our planet. And so the amount of plastic in the ocean is um, killing off species like crazy. So it's the same thing. If we change the environment of those species in the ocean too quickly by putting plastic there, they won't respond and they end up either dying or um, being sick and not even being able to reproduce. And so uh, it's the same thing with us. You know, we've changed, you know, our environment too quickly by exposing ourselves to these toxins. And I think that, you know, one of the, the biggest uh, growing symptoms in our world today is infertility. And so uh, I think that can be directly related to these toxins we're being exposed to. Totally. And so we have a few minutes left. I just want to go into like solutions. So what can people do about this? Because toxins are everywhere. Some of them we can control, some of them we can't. And then obviously we can help support our detoxification organs and pathways of elimination. So what would be like your top tips for helping minimizing exposure and then also helping our body detox? Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the number one, as far as minimizing plastic is, is just avoiding the use of plastic. But if you do um, have to use plastic, you know, don't, um, if it was in a hot car, do not drink anything from that bottle, you know, cause the heat will, you know, um, bring out the toxins more. Don't ever put plastic in the microwave um, or leave it out in the sun and then, you know, expose it to your body. Um, definitely be very careful about that. Um, and then obviously, you know, just decrease the, uh, the use of plastics in general. But um, some things we can do to help support your liver. Um, I really like milk thistle, uh, the herb milk thistle. Um, I think that's one of the best things for stimulating detoxification in your liver. 
Um, but also one of the best things is, um, like I mentioned before, grass fed beef liver, whether it's eating it or, or a supplement of it, like that is pretty much nature's multivitamin. I mean, everything that your liver needs to help you detox and function properly, all the B vitamins, uh, the vitamin A, everything like that, uh, comes in high quantities, uh, in, in those, uh, in that food. And then I think that using the sauna is very, very, um, helpful because again, uh, you sweat out toxins right out of your skin and the liver doesn't have to deal with them at all. Uh, and so that's very useful because that not only helps you get rid of toxins um, through your skin, but it helps your liver can focus on getting rid of other toxins. It doesn't have to worry about the other ones. How um, long would that need? Like how long would you have to be in the sauna for it? You know, uh, I mean, you, any amount is beneficial, but I, I definitely say, you know, 20 to 30 minutes at least okay. um, enough to start getting a good sweat. I mean, there's other benefits to the infrared light, uh, like building fourth phase water um, and putting you into that uh, non-stress state, helping your parasympathetic nervous system. Um, it helps uh, heal your mitochondria, but then it also pulls out the toxins. But you definitely want to be sweating. You know, that's that's the mechanism that your body gets rid of the toxins so long enough to to start sweating. Which some people are uh, don't sweat initially when they get in the the sauna um, for like months, and then eventually they learn to because their body's been so toxic that they have to relearn how to do that, um, which is pretty fascinating. For people who don't sweat easily, does that mean they're more toxic or is it something like genetic? I would say it's, it means they're more toxic because from what I've seen is that people always, uh, their body kind of learns to do it eventually. Um, once the, because toxins are not just, you know, floating around all the time waiting to be extracted. Like sometimes they're stored in tissues and it doesn't matter how much you sit in the sauna. Uh, they're not going to come out until we start um, uh, mobilizing them. Uh, so we can do that through, um, some chelation or just um, helping the liver get rid of the ones that are coming through so that the cells can put the uh, the ones that have been stored in tissues back into the blood so the liver can take care of those. So um, I, would, I would never advocate really like these, these cleanses, like these three-week cleanses, like detoxing is something we should do every single day. We should be doing something to detox um, because we're exposed to them every single day. Uh, and I think that these um, cleanses that are so popular, that are so quick and everything can be actually hard on the liver. Um, because it's it's uh, mobilizing a lot of toxins at one time uh, and we want to do it a little bit more gently yeah i totally agree with that it's like the january cleanse or detox and then they go back to eating whatever they were eating and it's really about daily practice right so right totally agree love it thank you so much how can we find you let us know what you're doing and if you want to share anything that's going on with your life and your business right now yeah so i uh i'm at resourceyourhealth.com and that's where i run the health coaching uh, my book is also for sale there, but you can also go on Amazon. And my book is called The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health. Um, I'm also pretty active on Facebook and Instagram, um, just at Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. And I also have a, a YouTube channel that's just Resource Your Health. Awesome. I will for sure put those links in the show notes. We can all check it out. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, That was a super interesting um, topic and, you know, um, information. I honestly could have kept going for a long time, (laughs) but uh, yeah, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you so much for having me.